My guest today is Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Dr. Thomas Parham. Thomas began his university life many years ago at UCI by earning his bachelor's degree in social ecology in 1977. From there, he branched out and earned his master's and PhD in counseling psychology. In 1985, Thomas Parham returned to UCI and has held leadership positions in Counseling and Health Services, the Counseling Center, and the Career and Life Planning Center. Since 2010, he has held the position of Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs. It has recently been announced that Thomas will be leaving UCI in June to become president of Cal State Dominguez Hills. Congratulations, Dr. Parham. Thank you very much, Kevin, and I appreciate the sentiment and the accolade, and I'm looking forward to the journey. Fantastic. Please tell us all about the process of accepting the position and how it all came about. So it's important for folk to know that I have never wanted to be a president, interestingly. I've never really sought out to be a vice chancellor, even though I'm now completing my eighth year. I'm a core academic by training. When I got recruited to come back to UC Irvine, I was on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. Ironically, the first African-American academic psychologist University of Pennsylvania ever hired in this 200-plus year history after it was founded by Ben Franklin back in 17-something-something. So when I got hired there in the early 80s in 1982, I was a young 27-year-old, brand-new doctor of psychology who received an Ivy League appointment to then teach on the faculty, which I love. So I'm a core academic. I also love doing clinical work, and I love writing and doing my research and scholarship. So that was really the core of my piece. Uh, When I was invited to come back to Irvine, it was to direct the Career and Life Planning Center and then engage in a broader range of activities. So I was teaching adjunct on the faculty and doing other pieces. So from there, I've just kind of moved through the ranks and up into more progressively responsible positions here at the campus. But your question was about the presidency. So I think it's important for your listeners to know that I'm a reluctant leader, never set out to kind of stair-step and try to be a president one day, but have always accepted leadership positions on the recommendations of other folk who thought I might have had something to give or thought that particular opportunity might be the right fit for me. And so when I became assistant vice chancellor, it was like that. When I became vice chancellor, it was like that. When I have been nominated for president. So I've been blessed to have been nominated for probably eight or nine presidencies in the last couple of years, most of which I've turned down being considered for because it was not something I really aspired to be. But this particular opportunity just happened to be a good fit for a number of reasons. So if you'd like, I can talk about that. But, you know, it's, for me, hard. And I'm fortunate to be in a position where I love doing what I do. I love being vice chancellor. I love the University of California at Irvine. And I love the people that I work with. And I love working with the students and on behalf uh, of their growth and development. So it was hard to move me off of this space because we've been so part of the campus and my family really has been a part of the campus for a long time. Dan Alders was joking with me years ago, Dan Alders Jr., that beyond the Alders family, the Parham family has been really very invested <laughs> in, uh, in the campus. And I've tried to give my heart and soul to this place while I've been here. But like all time passes and new chapters come and go, and we'll close the pages on this one at the end of June and open a chapter at Cal State University of Dominguez Hills. And my wife, Davida, and I are looking forward to the journey. Fantastic. Will you be moving up there or... So we're still trying to work out the logistics of that because the news is just a couple of days old. But we'll probably find some kind of residential accommodation in the area, but we'll still keep our house locally. Was it a difficult decision? Did you wrestle with it or was it fairly clear as the journey progressed? In terms of saying yes to the offer or yeah. to apply for the position? Yeah, to say yes to the offer. Once the offer came and you're in that process, at that point, 
it was clear, I think, that the answer would be yes. I have tremendous respect for Chancellor White, who's a former chancellor at UC Riverside, by the way, and an excellent representative of the Cal State system. Uh, the trustees, I think, are a very celebrated group who care a lot about higher education in the state of California, much like our own regions do. So at that point, once you go through the paper screens and the interviews and the second interviews and meeting with trustees and other folks, you know, at that point, when you've walked down that aisle and you've been able to see they've taken a look at you, you've taken a look at the opportunity, you know, at that point, you're clear that you want to be in that space. But perhaps I think we should go back and talk about what allowed me even to pursue the opportunity in the first place. I think there are probably four, five, six elements to that. First, I think I grew up in Southern California in Los Angeles. So L.A. is kind of home for me. So going back into Carson, which is kind of on the outskirts of L.A., is a little bit like going home. But I've had a, a career that has been in African psychology and uh, multicultural counseling and social justice and those kind of things. So Cal State Dominguez Hills has an interesting history. It was founded back in 1960 by then-Governor Edmund G. Brown. We used to call him Pat Brown in, in the community. Right. And the campus was designated first to be South Bay State College. And its first classes, in, once it was founded and then opened up its first classes in about 62, I think was in a building in Rolling Hills Estates and on the Palos Verdes Peninsula. So that was one of the sites that it was looking to be in terms of Palos Verdes. Mm -hmm. We also understand that in 1965, then a couple years later, when the Rots Rebellion took place, uh, Governor Brown came back and then decided that the university would actually be located in the Dominguez Hill site, principally because he wanted that university to be a gateway and a door of opportunity and upward mobility for the residents of the urban core of Los Angeles and that South Bay region. So if you think about my social justice roots and you think about the history of that campus that people, a lot of people don't know about, that excites me. That excites me about being able to do what we do, right, and invest in the personal growth and development of folk there. So those are perhaps the two reasons. The third one was being nominated by several folk, including several presidents within the CSU system. And when they nominate you and then the search committee, uh, not search committee, but the search firm, the executive search firms come to you and they give you a call and say, by the way, you've been nominated by all these people and we want to explore this opportunity. You're blessed and flattered by that. And you try not to get too geeked up around that, but you know, you're humbled really that people think that much of your skill to be able to do that. At some point, you have to decide, and this is kind of the fourth reason, that do I really have something to give to the campus? And I think I did. Fifth, I was very impressed by the open forum that I listened to, so that when they meet with the campus community and they come down and they say, what do you want in your next president? And they're interviewing faculty, staff, students, alumni, uh, legislators, you know, some of everybody from the community, residents, you know, folk coming in, everybody's weighing in this open forum. I was so impressed with the passion, the dedication, the commitment, and the love that people have for the campus and wanting to do the best they can for the students. It felt very much like family, and family resonates with me because, first and foremost, I'm a family man. And the last piece is, this is not just an opportunity. As I said, I didn't come to this like, I got to be a president, so let me just go to the first opportunity. This is not, to me, just a job or opportunity. This is a calling, and I think you have to be called to want to contribute to the personal and intellectual growth and development of young people. You have to be called to want to embrace the social justice roots of this campus and try to provide access and opportunity to the residents of the urban core as well as the South Bay region. You have to be called to want to create this space and build on the legacy that has already been left by the people who've been there. And so they just happened to call 
And I just happen to answer with, yes, I'll be delighted to serve and humbled to accept the opportunity. Do you have a particular goal at the top of your list? This is what I'm going to jump into right away, or are you looking at it like that? So one of the things I've learned in management in terms of do I have any immediate goals? You know, you always have aspirations about what you want to do, but I think you can always afford to get things done as long as you don't care about getting them done in the first six months. Because part of what you have to do is you have to listen and you have to learn and you have to kind of do this kind of listening tour and talk with a whole bunch of people. But there are several things I think I plan on doing there in terms of the listening tour and meetings you have to have. I mean, you've got to be able to meet with cabinet. You've got to be able to meet with, you know, a whole con- lot of constituents and academic senates and students and, you know, other folk. You've got to meet with staff. You've got to meet with alumni. You've got to meet with the press. You've got to meet with legislators. You've got to meet with all these other people who are there. But fundamentally, I think there are probably three or four elements that are key to the vision, to my vision, I should say. Uh, one of them is I want to help the campus close the gap between what I call aspiration and actualization. If you look at the strategic plan of California State University Dominguez Hills, called Defining the Future 2014 to 2020, there are lots of aspirational goals that the current president, Dr. Willie Hagan, has helped them to reach along with the rest of the campus community. So it's trying to help them really close that gap to be in there and see where they are in the strategic plan and how we can collectively help to move it forward. I think the second piece is I want to make Dominguez Hills help make it a destination campus. And I want Dominguez Hills and the Cal State system to know that if we're going to live out that historic legacy and really operationalize that, We want people to be excited about that, and we want to highlight, I think, some of the points of distinction that are clear about the campus, certainly. I think you also want to cultivate a greater level of investment in the campus, and that's by the corporate community, by the citizens, and by the legislature, so that people understand that this is their university and it has a lot of potential and strength to be in the space. So those are among the things that I'm looking forward to doing. Are finances for the Cal State system similar to the UC issue? Because I know... UC has not been funded by the state in significant numbers as in the past. Is, is Cal State under the same scenario? Or? So generally, I think, yes. The budget cycle for public higher education in the state of California works in a similar way in that in the fall, crafting the budget, you know, based upon that and what you think your budget needs will be, you know, relative to stability and growth. As you move through the fall cycle and present those, you then get the governor's budget in January-ish. You then have a lot of negotiation back and forth between what you said you needed in the fall and what the governor's budget then says. And then there's this space we call May Revise. And so in the May revisions, when the regents get it and the trustees of the California State University get it, there's then some discussions and things back and forward. And then all of a sudden the budget then is done around July. It then gets revealed and, you know, it's then distributed out to the different campuses and other folks. I do believe that there are lots of questions around whether the state has been disinvesting in public higher education. There are questions about whether or not the campuses in the state have been as good a steward of the resources of the people as they should have been. And so I'll be looking forward to going into Dominguez Hills and getting a first-hand look at which of those scenarios are true. What is true, for whatever reason, is when I graduated from college, and I'm a product, by the way, of both the CSU and the UC system, so people don't know that. I started my career, undergraduate career at Cal State Long Beach, transferred from there to then come to UCI and then finish up. 
But when I went to school, there was no tuition. We only had fees. And what has happened over time is that because the state basically in its master plan paid that tuition, what has happened is that it has shifted so that around 2009 or 10 is my memory, what a family and a student pays for their education now exceeds what the state invests per pupil, right, in public higher education. So whatever attribution you want to make, the data don't lie. The data is very clear that what students now pay is more than what the state invests in that. So that disinvestment has made, so they found some other priorities to do that. I think that there's no greater blessing in life than you can have than being trusted with the intellectual and personal growth and development of young people. And the future of any society is what it invests in its children. So education has to be among the top priorities, in my opinion, for the state and other folk to be able to create the workforce of today and tomorrow, but also just to create a more enlightened, informed, and civil society so that we can all learn to live together and confront some of the biases and assumptions we have about each other in terms of living in a diverse world. So, Excellent. In reflecting back of your over 30 years of being here at UCI, proud moments? Anything come God. to mind? You know, I've had so many. I mean, I, I tell folk that the best thing I've been able to do as a manager is surround myself with great people, provide them with a little bit of strategic vision and kind of direction and share with them, I think, what some of the values ought to be, and then get out of the way and let them do what they do. So I've been very impressed by the students, very impressed by the people, very impressed by the staff, and we've always had kind of the right leadership in the right place at exactly the right time for the campus. And so, you know, the campus is still poised to continue its trajectory toward greatness. So. Uh, that. Are there fond memories? Oh, absolutely. When the Career Center, when I came in, it was the Career Planning and Placement Center. And I thought it was too placement heavy and it needed to have a little bit more of a developmental focus to try to balance that out. So part of the transformation was trying to help it to realize the best of its possibilities. When I took over the Counseling Center five years later, I was director of the Career Center and the Counseling Center. It was about trying to help manage the mental health aspects and working with a phenomenal team of people in a highly regarded counseling center. But we put in place the first consultation team. So now everybody in the country has behavioral intervention teams. We were doing that 23, 4, 5 years ago when we were directing the counseling centers. Mm -hmm. So that piece came about. When I became assistant vice chancellor and I look at shaping really and creating this whole wellness, health, and counseling cluster and really helping to really change that and, and hoping to modify really the culture of the campus to focus a little bit more on student health and wellness. You know, I think we've been able to do that. I think uh, when I became vice chancellor, we've put not only the consultation teams in place and solidified those, we've in employed the constructive engagement models. We've put in place new centers to try to support students. We've put program series like the New Narratives programs and the Women's Empowerment Series in place. We've opened esports arenas. We've done, you know, so there's lots of things you can do that are all highlights. So one of the things I enjoyed is I came to work every day loving what I did, loving the place I did it in and loving the people I did it with they are really the highlight and the difference we've been able to make. I was sharing with probably one of the most profound memories. Somebody was asking me this when we were making a, a recent video for the trustees. And somebody asked me, do you have really just a poignant moment you know, that really stands out? And one of the most impactful things in my life, being a psychologist, is walking on the ring. Well, I think I was coming out of the counseling center years ago when I was uh, first, not long after I became assistant vice chancellor. And I'm walking up ring mall and I ran into a student who stopped me. It was actually a gentleman, it wasn't a student, he was already graduated. And I remember him being dressed, had a coat and a tie, he was a Latino male. And he said, are you Dr. Parham? And I went, yes. 
uh, Thomas Parham, and he introduced himself. And he says, you won't remember me. He said, but I want to stop you just to say thank you. I came by the campus today to say thank you because there was a time in my life when I was a student here when I couldn't see a brighter future and everything was collapsing around me and I was thinking about ending my life. And I came to the counseling center and you were one of the people who saw me. And I can't tell you how grateful I am that I am alive on this planet today because of the interventions of you in that counseling center. Now, it don't get no better than that for me. That there's somebody that's alive on the planet because you made it. You know, that to me, I think, becomes one of the highlights of the journey. Yeah. And you want to be able to say, I mean, I hope that with all the things that we've been able to do and contribute, I try to not say I as much as I say we because it really has been a team effort on the part of staffs that I've worked with, on the part of divisions I've worked with, on the part of campuses I've worked with. But I hope that when all is said and done, in the African-American culture, people say you ought to be able to say that you've done what the people loved and God praised. So I hope that I've done what the people loved and God praised and that at some point there'll be a, a small footnote around the campus to say that Parham was here and this place is a little different and better because he was. Nice. Any regrets? Not a one. Interestingly, I left the faculty at Penn in 1985, thought I would stay five years and go back to full-time faculty because I was liking my faculty clinical work, all that other stuff I was doing and run around the country speaking and training. When people say clinical work, is that when you're... In therapy with patients. Gotcha. I love doing gotcha. patient work. And it's also supervision because I'm supervising and training clinicians as well. But when I came back to Irvine, the vice chancellor then who recruited me said, you're coming back to Irvine is bigger than you managing the career center. We expect that you will contribute to the broader right, uh, mission of the university. So we w- look forward to deploying your skills in lots of different ways. So I had an adjunct faculty appointment to teach social psychology and social science. So I've taught two courses in my career here. One is in counseling theories, the other is in African-American psychology. So the busier that I got, you know, when I became AVC and then vice chancellor, two went to one, so I only did African-American psych now. But I was able to still teach, able to still do my clinical work, they gave me time to do my writing and scholarship. So I've only produced, I mean, it, it, it suffered a little bit because I'm not full-time faculty, so I don't have as much time being an administrator has a 40-hour week job that's more like 50 or 60 or 70 hours a week. But I've managed in these years to produce, I don't know, only six books and, I don't know, 45, 50 journal articles and book chapters. So, you know, the scholarship has been there. So they've allowed me to do all those things so there was never a need to have to leave after five years because everything I wanted to do, I was able to do here at Irvine. Mm-hmm. So I've been able to do my administration, my teaching, my research and scholarship, you know, the consultation and the clinical work, all right here. And so it's been just a great ride. So since I've been vice chancellor, you have no time to do almost anything other than your vice chancellor job, and it's a 24-7 job, which is why my car is here every weekend. So I spend three or four hours every Saturday and Sunday in this office doing work, catching up, and because I've tried to be a very engaged and involved leader, I always try to find time to put people on the counter. So you and I even sitting down today is an example of what that looks like. I always try to make sure I see students, make sure I'm on whatever. But it means you don't have time to do emails. You don't have time to do whatever. That's what I do in the evenings. That's what I do on the weekends. Try to manage and keep up with the work as well as reports and other things. But that's why you got to whistle while you work. You know, you got to love what you do because life is too short because you'll put a whole lot of time in doing it. So... I don't have any regrets, just uh, nothing but love for the campus, and I'm very grateful for what it has given me in terms of experiences and opportunities, 
And I hope that what I've given back to it has, again, made a difference. Mm -hmm. Excellent. In your adult life, what's the hardest thing you've had to overcome? Can you share that with us? Or maybe you can't. Or don't, you know, you don't, that's not something that you choose to do. Well. And how did you overcome it? So, I come with a with a mentality. So, if you look at that award right there in front of my desk, that stool right there, mm-hmm. pull that stool out for me. Just pick it up. You can pick the stool. Here. Uh-huh. I received that stool from the Association of Black Psychologists when we were in Ghana in 2000. And that was given to me with the Association of Black Psychologists logo card here and then your name on there. Because they said Parham is a warrior and a healer. And so the warrior healer element has really been part of that space you know, that I've been in and have always tried to conduct my affairs in a way that they mm-hmm. did that. Mm-hmm. So when I look at opportunities, when I look back on that, I've always tried to assume that posture. So what's been the hardest place? I'm always acutely aware that I'm a, a black man in America. I'm acutely aware that old grandma wisdom that said, in order to get half as far in life, son, you're going to have to be twice as good, is always in the back of my head. So I've pushed myself in a way to try to produce excellence and, and allow excellence to kind of speak for itself because you will have a harder road to travel than will some other folk. I've written about one of the central challenges for African-American people, but I think this is true of whether you're Latino, whether you're Asian, whether you're a woman, whether you're gay, whether whoever is underrepresented. You could be poor and white and be underrepresented. Whoever lives their life in spaces that Derek Bell called the faces at the bottom of the well, I think this is a central challenge. The question is, how do I maintain a sense of my own cultural integrity? in a world that does not support or affirm my humanity as a person of blank. So fill in the blank. For me, it's African descent. It could be woman. It could be gay or transgender. It could be whatever. It could be Jewish. It could be Muslim. It could be, you know, whatever the, the piece is. And that becomes one of the central challenges because opportunity is given where institutions have cultural norms for people who who approximate what it is that they think that normative standard ought to be. So my ability to be successful in some cases is not judged by how black I can be. It's about how well I can assimilate into the values, lifestyles, and behaviors into what the dominant culture suggests is legitimate. So even as we, we, we push for this diversity and equity and, and inclusion mantra, Part of the biggest experiment, not just on this campus, I think we do it pretty well, but in America, has been how to close the gap between what it aspires to be as a nation mm-hmm. and how that aspiration gets actualized every day within the context of our daily lives when there's so much hatred and discrimination mm-hmm. and divisiveness that exists in mm-hmm. the world, and we've got to be able to navigate that. That, for me, I think is one of the biggest challenges I've had to navigate in all the systems mm-hmm. you know, that I've been a part of in the institutions. but. I've been blessed with, you know, the, the, the grace of, of the Creator and the ancestors to be able to do the work and with phenomenal colleagues who I've been able to work with along the way, you know, who have helped really bolster my journey. So are you saying that the, the 
difficulty is holding yourself up to that standard that's like you know it's not easy the difficulty is not only holding yourself up to a standard but also the burden that you carry i think as a as a black man the great Algerian psychiatrist Franz Fanon argued, he said, each generation out of relative obscurity must reach out and seek to fulfill its legacy or betray it. So I recognize that whatever talent and ability I have, however bright people think I am, was made possible by some people who struggled long and hard before I was even on the planet. Mm. So I owe a debt and there's a legacy that I have to try to fulfill because, you know, that's part and parcel of who I am as just a cultural being. Mm-hmm. And so when I had a mother who separated from my dad when I was about three, grew up in L.A. In fact, we were born in New York, moved to L.A. when we were three. I was three, and I have stair-step, you know, siblings, mm-hmm. two above and one below. My mama worked for the federal government 32 years, never earned more than $18,000 a year, and that was only the last three years of her life. We grew up poor, but never knew we were poor because mm-hmm. we had lots of love and support and whatever. In a, but my mama produced two sons with PhDs, a third college educated, nobody on drugs, nobody in jail, nobody in the gang. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister's the oldest. I have an older brother, myself, and then my younger brother. And between Pam, William, and my younger brother, Gerald, you know, all of us are, are intact folk and responsible adults to do that. That was my mama's mission. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the sacrifice that I want to be able to honor. You know, that's the legacy that I want to be able to mm. give credit to uh, because that's where I draw my strength. You know, and she got by with doing that kind of work, focusing on her kids and her family and doing the kind of things that she had to do as a black woman working for the government. Even when they would bring young college-educated right, folk in, that she'd have to train to do their job, promote them to super grades while they patted her on the head and said, thank you, nice job, and kept her in those kind of lower status positions. But she never complained because she understood that there was something bigger in life, bigger than that. And, you know, that's the kind of people I come from. You know, that's the kind of sacrifice I make. So when I think about how my people were brought to this country, when I think about the range of things that we've been able to do as a race of people, those are the kind of things that drive me in those spaces. But I also think about the blessings that I've had growing up in L.A., which was a multicultural mecca. I grew up in integrated communities, so I had good friends, very good friends, lifelong friends who are white and Latino and Asian and Indian. You know, I grew up with that kind of multicultural space with men and women. I grew up with folk who were poor. I grew up with folks, so they have helped to really frame you know, uh, 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 the foundation of what I care about you know, and really who I am and how I define myself as a person. So even though I am blessed to occupy the spaces that I do and to walk in the spaces I do, I never forget where I come from. Mm-hmm. And so even going into this new opportunity and challenge at Dominguez Hill, I told a reporter the other day that I am those students. You know, I have all these accolades and all these awards you see on the wall. I'm a fellow in the American Psychological Association and the American Counseling Association. I'm a distinguished psychologist in the Association of Black Psychologists. I'm a celebrated academic and I've done lots of things. But that's what I do for a living. Who I am as a person fundamentally is a family man who tries to be a devoted husband to my wife, a nurturing father to my children, a supportive sibling to my brothers and sister, and a strong man in my community trying to make the community and the world a better place. That's where I get my motivation from. Wow. 
Dr. Prime, the final question, and I'm very interested in your insights. Wish we had a ton time more. The, the recent shooting in Sacramento of the unarmed black man. Mm-hmm. So, and I've tried to analyze this. You know, we have a white and black police officer, but so we have police officers who carry guns. It's necessary for them to carry guns. We have, um, there's crime, you know, breaking of cars and so forth. We have a helicopter above seeing, which they think they've identified as a suspect. He's jumping over fences. The police confront him and he, what's been reported that he pulls out a cell phone, but it was mistaken that they thought it was a gun Mm -hmm. and he got shot. And, and the news media is portraying it as unarmed black man. And I'm, as I look at the situation, I'm like, well, God, I mean, of course you don't want anybody to get shot. You don't want anybody to get killed. But as I look at it, I'm like, well, isn't that the way it, it, I have a sense of, isn't that the way it's supposed to, how it's supposed to happen? I mean, I don't, you don't want anybody to get shot. It's like, there's a suspect. He's jumping over fences. They're breaking and entering. The cops are afraid they're going to get shot. A guy pulls out something that looks like a gun and he gets shot. Can you give any insight into how how we progress? And, and I understand because you want a community that's safe. So we can't just ignore the bad guys or guys who are doing things. Can can you give any insight or suggestions of how how to, what to do? So, difficult question. And as I think about how to answer this, what I can say for the record is, I'm not familiar with all the details of that particular case. So it's hard to comment on that particular case, but let me elevate the discussion out of that and into something more broad about um, the need for law enforcement and safety, the sanctity of black life, and how those two collide in some ways that are sometimes supportive and some ways antagonistic. Um, Growing up in America, I have been that black man who has said, get up against the wall and use the N-word growing up in L.A. I've been there. Stop by walking while black. What was that? Walking while black. Walking down the street. Yeah. And people, they just kind of circle the neighborhood, get up against the wall, you know, kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Stop while walking. Stop while walking. Gotcha, gotcha. Because you happen to fit a description. Now, I don't happen to look, last time I looked like a gang member, like a, a thug, a hoodlum, or something, you know, my shirt's always tucked in me, grew up that way. But that's just what you grew up with, right. with law enforcement. So I've been where some of these kids are at, and but for the grace right. of God. Right. I am, if I, if I go around anywhere in the country, people around here call me Dr. P, and I have more degrees and letters and awards behind my name than most people have fingers and toes combined. I've been real blessed in my life. But I also know that in America, any street I walk in, if I, don't, if I take my coat and tie off and people don't know I'm Dr. P and I just put my regular sweatsuit and tennis shoes on, which I'm normally used to have, 
and I walk down the street, I've been on streets where people have approached me, said, you know, that you see them kind of take a double take, like, uh-oh, crossed the street, kept going, and then recrossed again when they thought it was safe. It's like, what kind of anxiety gets provoked in people when they look at someone like me? Because they don't see Dr. P with all them degrees. And there's, you know, most of what we learn about people who are culturally different in America, we learn off of television. Mm-hmm. Now, there's only three images on television primarily that are black. You're going to either be an entertainer, an athlete, or a criminal. And I got to believe if they thought I was an entertainer or an athlete, they'd be coming to get my autograph, not running from me to cross the street and go the other way. I've been in hotels, the fanciest hotels in America, right? New York City, other places waited two or three minutes for elevator to come, just like in the middle of the day. It seemed like it was all day coming. It probably took like a minute or two. Had a person stand there and was first at the elevator before I arrived. And then when we go in to get in the elevator, I act like a gentleman say, after you, ma'am. And the person says, that's okay. I'll catch the next elevator. I've had people clutch their purses like, mm, let me make sure this is not a predator. You know, what people see is very different. So... I say all that as context to say that it is not easy growing up in this world, in this nation, being a black man and having to be in that space, or a black woman for that matter, to be in those particular spaces. And so contextually, our readers need to, and listeners need to know that. Secondly, I'll say that I admire law enforcement, have tremendous respect for law enforcement, and very much appreciate the job that they do. I deplore racist law enforcement. I deplore biased law enforcement. I deplore sexist law enforcement. I deplore you know, any kind of law enforcement that doesn't live up to the standards of integrity that you know, they, they take an oath to protect. And so when there is differential enforcement on the street, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Now, there have been some demands, even on this campus, to say, you know, F the police and ban that whatever, never would I support that. I've been very, very swift in my condemnation to say no, because most of law enforcement does a great job. And I'm not prepared to condemn a law enforcement community who, when black children get shot in drive-by shootings, they're the first ones to go run and try to find the perpetrator. When black mothers are sexually assaulted, when black kids are harassed and abused, when when uh, black families are robbed, when Latino families are robbed, when Asian families are robbed, these are the same law enforcement folk running to danger, not away from danger. So in no way am I prepared to indict an entire law enforcement community that provides a blanket of safety and comfort that we operate in every day. Mm-hmm. Having said that, however, it isn't just a Sacramento case. When I'm looking at Mike Brown in Ferguson, when I'm looking at Orlando Castile in Minnesota, when I'm looking at Tamir Rice in Cleveland, when I'm looking at countless of these folk, Freddie Gray in Baltimore, when I'm looking at countless of these incidents, where these are all black folk, right, in spaces where somehow they wind up injured, dead, killed at the hands of law enforcement. When I look at uh, Abner Louima, and uh, um, uh, Diallo in New York, two separate incidents. When I look at all those things over time, this is not new. Mm -hmm. The Watts Rebellion 
1965, the spark of that was the, the uh, abuse of a black woman in the street. Even though the social climate and conditions look good, when you look at the, the up, up arrest and uprising and rebellion in 92, after the Rodney King verdict, what was interesting about that is the Rodney King verdict didn't start when they beat him down, which is where the flashpoint of most riots in the country are. Right? It, 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 because at that point, we had them smiling on candid camera when they thought nobody was looking. And the person who had the video was white. Took the video into court with the police who lied and said the car was doing this, this person was resisting arrest, and they got them on video. Four of them beating him down, 22 others standing around Rodney King. And they gave a savage beating to that individual because he was black. Lied to the folk and the commanders the next day until the video came out. Then they had to come forward. Took them into court. And you want to know what real power is? Real power is the ability to convince a jury that what you see on that video is not really what you see. That's power. Power is the ability to define reality and make other people respond to that definition as if it were their own. So backing back up now to the central question about I'm not familiar with all the facts. I'm going to reserve judgment about the Sacramento piece. I just don't know enough. But I see enough of the trends that go around the country. What I see are innocent black people with no weapons being shot. What I see are innocent black people stopped and frisked because they just happen to look suspicious. I've been there. Right? At the same time, I've been face-to-face with a gun on the street with Crips pointing a gun in my face saying, give up the leather coat that one of my brothers had, right? Or we will blow your head off. You know, I've been in both of those spaces. Right. So predators come in, 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 in all forms. But um, what I do want to hope for is that we continue and thank law enforcement who protects the safety, right, and security of our neighborhoods and, and, and uh, other people. What I do want to ask for is that those who abuse that trust of the people be held accountable and that we do a much better job of training on the front side to make sure that there is not this climate of fear that exists in communities so that every time you walk up and see a black man, you're going to cross the street because these are the same people who are getting trained. Because, because if, if they thought he was a wealthy businessman and he was reaching in his pocket for a cell phone, one of those people might potentially be alive. But because he's black and he reaches for a cell phone, it must be a weapon. Everybody black doesn't carry weapons. Everybody black is not a gang member. Even when you identify yourself, as Philando Castile did in Minnesota. By the way, I have a carry permit. The gun is in the car. I'm letting you know, right? Hands in plain sight, whatever. And as soon as he makes a move to get a license and tells the police, the police just bam, bam, bam. Tamir Rice in Cleveland, 12-year-old kid playing with a little plastic toy gun. They roll up on him, and they give the story that they gave him three lawful commands to drop the gun. 12-year-old kid that a neighbor called. And then till the video, not till the video comes out, do we find out that they lied because when they rolled up the windows in the police car rolled up because it's cold outside. And it took about 1.4 seconds for them to get out the car and blow this kid up. And they tried to lie. And, and not only that, but then the courts, in the same way Rodney King did, Flano Castile, all these places, 
then acquitted the officers of the peace, the Freddie Gray, the state prosecutor, indicted the police. The court said, uh-uh. You know, that's the message that it gets sent, you know. And so we have to do a better way to support and affirm the dignity and humanity of black life, but also all life, because all lives are precious. But we also have to find a way to hold uh, uh, law enforcement more accountable for the abuses that I think occur in law enforcement communities, I think, when innocent lives are taken when they didn't have to be lost. So that's a longer answer to your question, but I hope a more thorough one. I think it was, for the time that we had, I think I really appreciate your forthrightness. I, As I've been exposed to diversity and inclusion on this campus, particularly as a reporter, I've been changed. And I've come to realize how that I have a white man's perspective. I've never been walking on the street and had somebody tell me, you know, a police officer said, get against the wall. Hmm. And if that happens once, a few times, and a couple more times of getting stopped, whatever, I, I've, I've come to realize, wow. See, that, 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 like? that is the essence of what people call white privilege. And the reason that doesn't happen for you is because if the white community's kids start getting abused in the same way the black and Latino community kids are, in the same way these Asian kids are profiled, the white community is going to walk up to City Hall and demand that the mayor and the city manager do something about those police officers or they're going to take their job. That's how power works. But the only people who scream about it when a black life is lost are the black community. I've consistently said in my narratives over the years, is that one of the reasons why racism and sexism and the isms, ageism, homophobia, whatever, don't change classism is because the only people who scream about it are the victims. Sexism is not women's problem, it's men's problem. And until men decide that we're going to clean up our own house, it's not going to change. Racism is not black people or Latino people's problem. It's not Native American problem or Asian problem. It's white people's problem. And until brothers and sisters in the white community decide that we're going to clean up our own house, that's not going to change wholesale. Mm-hmm. We have to learn how to become advocates for one another across those demographic boundaries. Mm-hmm. But you're right that until you have that upfront and close face-to-face experience, people would never believe what goes on. Yeah. And even in the face of the video, like they're talking about the body cameras for police, even in the face of video, they find a way to reframe the evidence and say, no, that's not really what you see. Really? Yeah. It's interesting. Actually, I have had two and a half, two and three experiences where I just, you know, it was a cop having a bad day or whatever, and I just knew back down, you know, this guy's having a bad day, and, huh. you know, whether, you know, it was just, I was, it was a traffic stop. But he just, in fact, my buddy that was in the car, he said, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know if the guy was always like that or he was just having a bad day. But, you know, when you're in an environment where, because well, I don't have, I don't have to deal with prejudice, sure. typically. Sure. So when you're dealing with that, and then, to, you know, sometimes you get tired of backing down. Well, and sometimes you do, and that, that has fatal consequences yeah. too, so we try to teach all our kids to do it, but... Remember the incident of Eric Garner in New York, who's on the street selling cigarettes, they alleged. Let's assume even he was. Mm-hmm. 
at best, at best, I'm going to write you a ticket and a citation. Say you got to appear in court and then leave it alone. Why am I getting around you, surrounding you with six officers, putting them in a chokehold, getting into I can't breathe, and now we got another life lost, right, for something simple as that? Why, when we're in Miami, and I'm blanking on the individual's name, you remember the video, where there's a person who's black who is the an attendant for a disabled individual mm-hmm. who is confronted by the police down, I want to say it's in Miami, and as he lies down, he even has his legs and arms in the air like this, and they still shoot him on the ground. I mean, these are the things that we see. So, you know, that's the kind of stuff that we have to be able to stop. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of, of cover-up we have to be able to stop. That's the kind of accountability we have to be able to impose, even as we want to thank them for doing that. Why am I an educator? It is because... It's hard to grow up in a world without being infected with the toxicity of biases and assumptions that we make about folk who are culturally different. Men toward women, women toward men, black toward white, white toward black. You know, it's all intermixed in there, right? Whatever combination you want, upper class toward, you know, the the, the working poor, whatever. But education is the great equalizer to me. Because it allows us to go in and, and help people discover knowledge, help people uh, learn to confront the biases and assumptions they bring with them into these educational spaces. And so what we are turning out in places like Irvine at my new home in Cal State University, Dominguez Hills, are citizens of tomorrow, global citizens of tomorrow, who are, are more educated, who are hopefully less biased, who are more informed, and are prepared to take their rightful place of rulership and mastery over their circumstance in the world, but do so in a way that allows them to appreciate and affirm the dignity and humanity of people who are culturally different than them. That's why we go to work every day doing what we do. And that's what I'm looking forward to doing in my new role. Dr. Barham, thank you very much. My pleasure.